Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. This is our second Sunday now in John chapter 6 as we work our way through the Gospel of John. This series was taking us through John 5 through 12. And just a reminder, uh, we want to go through books of the Bible passage by passage and verse by verse. And there's a really significant reason why that's a good idea. A couple, actually, but basically this. Faith comes by the hearing of the Word. Uh, God's Word is powerful. My opinions are my opinions. <laughs> God's Word is powerful. It will not return unto Him void. Um, and so we want to hear what God has to say when we come here together to worship Him and to dig into His Word. And so we want to go through the text of the Scripture that way. So we will continue to do so today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 16 through 30. Four. A question. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country? How many of you have been outside of the United States? Um, and to a non-English speaking country? Okay. So you've experienced this. Um, I've had the privilege of taking two trips uh, for missions in the nations of Chile and Haiti. And in both trips, I got to share the gospel with people in both countries. In Chile... I got to share the gospel in a home, a family's home, to share the gospel with a husband and a wife right there in their living room across the coffee table from one another. Uh, and in Haiti, I had the privilege of preaching in uh, two different churches. The main problem, of course, is that in Chile, the people speak Spanish, and in Haiti, they speak what's called Haitian Creole. It's uh, based off of the French language. I'm fluent in neither. Uh, so had there not been a translator, th- those opportunities would have been quite awkward. Can you imagine that? Uh, the people would have either insisted on a different speaker. Uh, their pastor was there that day. They could have said in their language, get him out of there. Let's get our guy back in. They could have had that. They would have wanted a different speaker. Maybe, though, a translator, which is what we had. Or maybe they would have just nodded their heads politely and smiled, not having a clue what I was saying. <laughs> those are the possibilities. Either way... I had come from a different place, and we'd had a hard time understanding each other's words without some sort of intercession. And in today's passage in John 6, uh, starting in verse 16, we see a similar need brought up by Jesus. Though he was speaking in their language, Jesus had come from a different place. And he was speaking on a level they were not understanding. Without a third party doing some work, they're, they're not going to understand. They were not going to understand, uh, nor did they want to. And more on that later. So in the whole of, of chapter 6, of John 6, Jesus seems to take on larger crowds and more followers. Sometimes they've been being called disciples. So more people continue to flood or to flock towards Jesus. But then, by the end of the chapter, many of them leave. They leave, showing that they weren't truly disciples in the first place. And these false disciples were drawn by and characterized by a couple things. Uh, number one, following the crowds, meaning that crowds draw crowds. Uh, secondly, an interest in the supernatural, uh, the prospect of seeing something amazing, uh, the miraculous, would draw them in. And especially if Three, there were earthly benefits. 
If there's something I want, and there always is, and there's someone out there who can give it to me easily, I'm in, right? With, though, sadly, no desire for true worship. Uh, The miracles of Jesus, for many people, only elicited their desire to harness his power for their own temporal needs. They came not to serve, but to be served. They didn't come to be changed, but to have their circumstances changed. This is how things were going there, to seek their own personal prosperity, their own personal health, and whatever else they might want. And it even caused them to make demands of God. To make demands of God, which is what we saw at the end of the message last week. John six fifteen, where Jesus perceived that the crowd was coming to take him by force. To make him their king. And last week, remember, we, we affirmed the fact that nobody can make Jesus be their king. Remember that day, Jesus had fed 15,000 plus people. There were the 5,000 men, and everybody, man, woman, and child, were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. So probably over 15,000 people that day, Jesus had fed by creating, he is the creator, by creating those barley rolls, those little fish out of that boy's lunch basket. He could do those things because he's God. And the response of the crowd, with their full bellies and their wallets intact, their response was to call Jesus their Messiah. Uh, They called him the prophet who was to come, who would be like Moses, who had been promised to them. And then they attempt to forcibly make him their king. And Jesus' response to that, you remember, he went up to them and said, I'm here, let's do this. Now he withdrew, and he went up into the mountain alone, alone. And all who were there, they just stayed, and they waited And they wondered. But the disciples didn't wait around forever. Uh, We'll see a little bit later from Matthew's account of this, of this, um, this episode that, that Jesus sent them on ahead to Capernaum by boat. So now, let's see what happens next as we pick back up in John 6 verse 16. It says this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Uh, Reiterating the fact here that Jesus is not with the disciples in the boat. That's important. Uh, The sea became rough, it says in verse 18, because a strong wind was blowing. The Greek word for strong is what we get the word mega from. This was a mega wind, Okay. And the Sea of Galilee here, the surface of the water in the Sea of Galilee was nearly 3,000 feet below the top of the hills that surrounded it. So there's a drastic difference between the top of the land and the surface of the waters at the Sea of Galilee. So when a storm whips up and comes across that area and the wind rushes down the sides of those hills down under the water, the result of that is just like that, you're going to have all of these waves and white caps all over that area. And so small boats like the ones the disciples were in could be in grave danger unexpectedly, very quickly. And that's what the disciples are going to find themselves in. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, so they're now right into the middle of the sea, they saw Jesus walking 
on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. You think you'd be frightened in that moment? (laughs) You're already scared, and then you see somebody walking on the water. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And in the Greek, these are the same words that Jesus said when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Remember that? I am. What is that name? Uh, The name of God, right? So Jesus is saying to them, I am. Do not be afraid. It says in verse 21, they were glad. They were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Another miracle. Another miracle. Um, according to the, the, the account from Matthew 14, if you want to turn there with me, uh, Matthew also writes about this event, and we're going to get some more insight as we look into his, his account here. So this is Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Matthew 14, 22. It says there, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, uh, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Okay, so we're, we're, we're good there. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, so the fourth watch between 3 and 6 a.m., they had left the shore anywhere from 6 to 9. Now it's between 3 and 6. So these guys are tired. They've been rowing and rowing and rowing, making very little progress, uh, being driven out to the middle of the sea, and they're scared. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Uh, By the way, the middle of the sea, he didn't have GPS, right? He just happened to be right there by the boat. They just happened to see him when he was right there by the boat, and he's on the water. It says verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. <laughs> and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I, or I am. Do not be afraid. And here's a major part that John chose not to put in his account. Verse 28, Peter answered him. So Jesus is still outside the boat. Peter and the disciples are inside the boat. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, so he's still thinking the ghost thing's a possibility here. If it is you, command me, I I wouldn't highly suggest this, by the way. (laughs) If it was a ghost, you could have said, yeah, come on out. But he says, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. And walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Probably not like that. Probably like, Lord, save me! With gargling water and whatnot, right? If you imagine, you know, what do you think that looked like? Peter gets out of the boat. The storm is still going on, by the way, right? The storm has not stopped. He has not told the wind to stop. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks to Jesus. Now, Jesus is not a football field away, right? He's there near the boat, but he walks to Jesus. And all of a sudden, he looks away and realizes, oh, yeah, (laughs) this is happening right now. And it says he begins to sink. So that either means, just 
if with everything else that's happening, we can speculate, right? He's either lowering into the water, which in and of itself is a continuation of this miracle, or hypothetically, he'd... What, what would happen if you were standing on water and all of a sudden you weren't anymore? Down you go, pop back up like a buoy for a second, and start crying out, Lord, save me! And he did. He did. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So let's put all this data together from from John and from Matthew's account here. The disciples left the scene of the feeding of the 5,000. A megastorm came suddenly on the sea. Then they rowed and rowed to little avail until they were stuck in the middle of the sea. Jesus shows up, seemingly out of nowhere, walking on the water beside the boat and tells them who he is and to not be afraid, right? Uh, Before the storm ceases, Peter hops out of the boat and walks with Jesus on the water. And they start sinking, ask God to save him. And he does. They get in the boat. Everyone's relieved because Jesus is there and because the storm stops. And when the storm stops, they're instantaneously... Remember, they were out at the sea, in the middle of the sea. And they're instantaneously now at the shore at Capernaum. How many laws of nature were just broken in that? To be in a boat in the middle of the sea and then all of a sudden the storm stops. And as soon as you realize the storm has stopped, you're somewhere else. And you didn't go when the boat flew real fast or anything like that. You're just there. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And it's probably a miracle upon a miracle upon a miracle. And the disciples in that time worshipped Jesus, whom they now know, if they didn't already, and believed to be God the Son, which is, by the way, the only right response. To know who Jesus is, the only right response, by the way, they bow and they worship. Now, what about the crowd? It's time for the contrast. Okay, we see the disciples acting, now it's time for the contrast. Back to John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, meaning no breakfast, why were they staying there overnight? Yeah, breakfast, okay? Nor were his disciples there, it says. Uh, No waiters. Double problem. They themselves, the crowd, got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That would have been a scene as well, wouldn't it? All these people in boats going to Capernaum. This crowd seeking Jesus is actually growing in number as well as people from Tiberias are coming and people are hearing what's happening. And even when they get, if you're at Capernaum and you're at shore and all this is coming to you, what are you going to do? What's happening? And you might join the crowd there. So this number, these followers, is growing and growing. Can you imagine all of these people? And it says they're seeking Jesus at Capernaum on the hunch that he'd gone back there. They didn't know it, but that, that's where they knew that he'd been. But it's worth it to try. And they all go back to Capernaum. But what are they really seeking? We have to ask ourselves that question. And we're 
the way John writes this and what's to come, we, we ask this question. They're seeking Jesus, but they're, they're seeking him for what? For what? And why? And the text is going to answer these questions. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi. That's a first. Rabbi. As if to say, since you're healing us and you're feeding us, we'll give you respect. We'll call you teacher. Remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for longing for this treatment from people to be called rabbi. And why were the people even calling Jesus rabbi in the first place? Because of what he would do for them. So even their calling Jesus rabbi was a tool for manipulation to lift him up, to make him want to give them more of what he gave them before. That's, that's a big deal, isn't it? Uh, think about the emptiness, the emptiness of the praise of man, and yet we clamor for it so much. But that's what's behind it. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? You left without a boat. How did you get here? And notice he never answers this question. We'll see this. He never answers the question of how he got here. And it's not that he missed a golden opportunity to prove himself. You might think he should have said, you'll never believe what I did last night. You don't believe in me yet? Get this. Hey, disciples, tell the story. He doesn't do it. Unnecessary. And he didn't miss out on it. He doesn't say or do anything like that. The question he answers is the question we asked, and a more significant one at that. Why are they, this is the question, why is this crowd seeking Jesus in the first place? And here's the answer, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Meaning, not because of who I am, but because of what I can do for you. You saw the signs. You claimed to believe that I was the Messiah, but you don't want what the signs are pointing to, what they're calling you to believe. What you want is the temporal stuff, what the signs can give you. That's what you want more. And then Jesus continues his rebuke in verse 27. He says this, Do not work, and keep in mind that word work, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal eternal life, which the Son of Man, a name for the Messiah from, from Daniel, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So this is the pattern. This is the pattern that we need to see here. There's working for food that perishes, and there's having food which endures given. Given. Do you see that? Work, food that perishes, food that endures, given. Given. In verse 28, we'll see if they get this or not. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Did they get it? They're not seeing it. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. They just asked, what can we do to be doing the works? And he said, it's the work of God. This is the work of God. It's not yours. It's God's work. You can't do it. 
And this is God's work. Here it is. In this next uh, sentence here. Are you ready for this? It says this. God's work is that you believe in him whom he has sent. What was God's work? That you believe. That you believe. So what Jesus is saying is this. You, crowd, you, people, you are trying to do things, trying to work in order to get a bite to eat that will fill you for now, but won't even last the whole day. You still wanted breakfast, didn't you? Or, or figuratively, we could say this, you are working to get stuff that doesn't last, that doesn't have any eternal value. They're earthly, temporal things. Uh, we said this before and earlier in John, they are broken cisterns, like holes in your bucket. It doesn't last. But Jesus says, I am here. Jesus came to give, to give you food that will last forever, forever. So start thinking here about the Samaritan woman. Jesus said to her, do you remember in John 4, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst again. And there'll be other parallels like this as we continue on in this narrative. Uh, Now, the means by which you get, by which you are given this food which endures forever, what was it? It was the work of God. Not yours. Not yours. And the result of that work which God does, the result of his work is that you believe. That I believe. Did you catch the order? There's another pattern right there. God works, I believe. God worked, so I believed. Not the other way around. God didn't work because I believed. Okay, it's not like I I heard and I went, oh yeah, I figured it out. There it is. I believe. Then God went, whoa, 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 there he is. He got it. He figured it out. I better go take care of that. That's not how that pattern goes. It's the other way around. God works and then we believe. And then have, we are given. We don't work for it. We are given eternal life. And then we have to ask this, what happens before that? What happens before any of that? What's going on in my heart or in my thoughts? What am I believing before that work? And Romans 3 answers this for us. Romans 3 verses 10 through 18 and in these verses, the Apostle Paul is, is quoting from, and here's a, here's a partial list, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Jeremiah 5, Psalm 14, Psalm 140, not 14, Psalm 10, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36, and more. So this passage is not Paul's new idea, though he was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, so it would have been just fine. This is, this is Paul doing a little short systematic theology of the Old Testament concerning the condition of man, uh, the heart of man. And it says this, uh, Romans 3 verse 10, as it is written, so these are all quotes from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. Some of these are like ouch statements, aren't they? No one does good. Not even one. It doesn't even have to say there that no one is good without Christ. 
we don't even do anything good. We don't even do anything good. Why? Why is our righteousness filthy rags? Let me say because of our motives. Without the grace of God, there will always be an admixture of selfishness and sinfulness in our motives. Even when we do things that are good things, we don't do them for purely good reasons outside of Christ. And they are not good. We will always fall short of the glory of God. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Rabbi, the venom venom of asp or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Before Christ, we are at war with God. There's not a peace that is pending our decision. We are at war with God until we aren't. And in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So, do you know what I was like until God worked in me and I believed? I was like that. And no offense, but... Do you know what you were like before God worked in you and you believed? Like that. Just the same. And right now, all those who uh, have believed here today, we're we're somewhere in between Romans 3 and and just like Jesus. As Romans 8 promises that God's going to work in us to conform us progressively into the image of Christ. Even though God sees us through the blood of Jesus, we've been given his righteousness, has been put to our account, we are justified before God we are right now presently being changed, our sanctification, into his likeness, progressively. And if you're here today, and if you're honest, you you would say, I think I love Jesus, or at least the idea of Jesus, more for what I expect him to do for me, for my workplace, for, for me at school, in my bank account, or my social status. If Jesus is supposed to keep your belly full and your feelings positive... If the reason, if that's the reason why uh, you see him like that, or you see him as being important, the reason you love what you think he's supposed to do, what he's supposed to do, seeking him like it would be from this passage for your fill of loaves, more than you would ever think of loving him. Why would we be like that? Why would we do that? Well, it's because of this. It's the condition of our heart. It's who we are in our Sin, our natural sin-cursed hearts. All these people following Jesus, some of them even being called his disciples, as we'll see later on in this chapter, by other people, okay? They weren't his disciples and then weren't his disciples in reality, but they were seen following Jesus and therefore were called his disciples by other people, but they weren't true disciples, And they left him and all the true followers behind when they stopped getting what they wanted. That was what killed it for them. People don't naturally seek after God. People don't naturally understand. People aren't intrinsically good. But even today in this auditorium with all these people, the people that are here, God could use the hearing of his word to do a work in your heart, in the heart of some or in the heart of many If you are here today and you know that you've not put your faith and trust in Christ alone and his finished work on the cross for the payment of your sin for salvation, 
Believe. Believe. Uh, May God do a work in your heart. Believe. Repent. And put your faith in Christ. You can do that today. Listen, there isn't a spectrum of goodness and evil that gets people into or out of heaven. We either believe or we don't. There are people who believe and there are people who don't. And those who believe are justified. And those who don't are not. And we're seeing these two responses from the people today. The disciples believed and called Jesus the Son of God and they worshipped him. And the crowd... Well, let's see what happens and continue in that. Verse 30, John chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, that What sign do you do? He's just calling them to believe. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Okay, again, do they believe? It seems pretty obvious. Sadly, no, they don't. And this is one of the weirdest things in the Bible in my mind, what comes here next. What work do they ask Jesus to perform to earn their belief? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. Oh, they're going to throw a Bible verse in there. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're asking him for food. Do you hear that? Do you see that? What did Jesus just do for them yesterday? He gave them food and miraculously gave him food. Did word not get around? Have they forgotten that easily? Are their hearts that hard? And sadly, the answer is yes. So here's what they're saying to Jesus. Uh, By the way, how long did their fathers eat the manna in the wilderness? How long did they do that? 40 years. 40 years. Every day. Here's, here's what I think they were saying to Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Yesterday was a good start. But Moses fed Israel for 40 years. So if you want us to believe that you are the prophet to come, who is like Moses, you've got 14,599 days to go. Or maybe more accurately, more succinctly, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, you'll have to keep giving us what we want on a continual basis. We will believe in you as long as you keep giving us what we want. And all this time, Jesus is saying, what you want is not what you need. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Moses didn't put the manna on the ground and rush around for all those people every morning for 40 years. God did that. But Jesus says, My Father gives you, there's gives again, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, It's not it, right? The bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who's the bread? It's Jesus Christ. Is it what he's doing and what he's giving, or is it him? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the prize. He is not a tool for our use to get what what we want. He is the Lord our God. And misunderstanding that will be the difference from, from being a false and a true disciple 
of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Remember the Samaritan woman? When told about that living water, she said, Sir, there's a similarity, give me this water, the living water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come draw water here again. But remember at that point in the conversation, she had not yet believed. She didn't get it yet. She, she wanted water so that she wouldn't have to go back to that well every day and be seen by all the people in the town that knew all the crud in her life. That's what she wanted, was to avoid that. And just a heads up for next week, to understand what the crowd means by asking for this bread, Jesus' next word to the crowds that we're going to look at next week, he says, I am the bread of life. And their response is in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. That's what's going to happen. And what kind of bread did they want? Always, always, bread that was better than manna. Jesus just promised them bread that's better than manna. A whole different type of bread and a whole lot better. And whatever that was, that was better than manna, Jesus, give us that always. No more 40 years. Now forever is the expectation. This is the natural heart of man. This is the heart of man. Now, before we finish up, just a couple things to think about and consider respond to. First of all, we need to be careful with a passage like this and, and what the core meaning of it is and what we're supposed to learn from it. We need to be careful not to whiplash and then therefore neglect earthly care. Okay? We can't whiplash so far from it that we go, well, then we're not going to feed anybody. Does that make sense? Uh, there are people who believe that this miracle... As they study the Bible, they believe that this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is all about a supposed mission to bring um, the kingdom of God by feeding the world. That the purpose of Jesus' mission and ministry was to teach us to eliminate world hunger. Okay? That's called the social gospel. That that really is what it's all about. That we're going to bring about the kingdom by eliminating all the things that are wrong with the world. We're going to... We're going to... Um, take apart and remove the curse by our good works. That's the social gospel. Okay? And that's obviously not what this passage is talking about. That's not true. And that conclusion would put a person in the same boat, if you think about it, with all the people in this passage that are demanding better bread always. It's the same conclusion, and they were wrong in this passage. That's why context is so important. Does it make sense? If all we do is read about Jesus feeding 5,000 and the period at the end of the sentence that says they all ate and they were filled and we stop there, then what do we learn? Perhaps something far different than what we're supposed to. So we want to read, and again, why we go through verse by verse and passage by passage and book by book. We need to learn these things. But remember this. Jesus' miracles validated who he is. There's a reason for the miracles that carries a greater significance than the miracles themselves. And that's what we want to get after. What they validated and what he taught. It's the words. But he did feed them, didn't he? He did feed them. And he did so with compassion, looking at sheep without a shepherd. Even though he knew they were going to reject him, 
he fed them compassionately. And there's something that we can learn from that. So, is it good for us to feed others? To help others where we can? Is it good for us to give a cup of cold water, literally and figuratively, in Jesus' name, like it says to do in Matthew 10? There's your clue. (laughs) The answer to that is yes, right? The answer is yes. And if you think about it, for a very similar reason as to why Jesus did the miracles in the first place, Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says this, You, church, you followers of Christ, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand to be seen. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Not our good works, works to get God's favor and get heaven, but the good works that we do because we've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus and now our hearts aren't so desperately wicked because God is changing us and conforming us into the image of Christ. Let those good works be seen and give glory that they may see your good works and then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now we just say, well, other passages say, don't let anybody see the good things you're doing. Yes. In this way. If I do good things, constantly looking over my shoulder and hoping that Ralph sees me do it and go, man, Pastor Andy is the man. I'm like, yes, I am. If that's what it's all about, I have missed it, haven't I? But if we as a church love the Lord and love our community and the community notices that, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And remember, Jesus did these works, validated who he was, and through that avenue, he spoke, and he taught, and he gave the words of life, and we are to do the same, that they may see your good works so that, and then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is a way for them to see, to know we are Christians by our love. And then that we may be able to share with them the love of Christ, that they would hear the truth of God's word and hear the gospel and be saved. That's why we do these things. The same reason, uh, give or take, that Jesus did these things. So why should we do nice things for people? To point thirsty people to living water. To point hungry people to food that endures to eternal life. What Jesus did simply validated who he is, but what he said, the words, those are what bring salvation. So, be encouraged in your kindness, be encouraged in your generosity towards others, and be encouraged in your witness. You have to speak the gospel. Yes, we should live like Christ. And that means we're going to speak the truth, because that's what Jesus did, didn't he? We speak the truth of God's word and we share the gospel. So be encouraged in that. Faith comes from the hearing of the word. Romans 10, God is doing his work, which means the church is going to be built. There will be people who hear the word, and there will be people who believe, so we're guaranteed success. It should motivate us to share the gospel with people. And every one of us has been called to this, haven't we? The mission of our church is to make and mature disciples. It's the Great Commission. We say that we want to connect people and transform lives by the word of God. We want to worship him, participate in outreach, pursue relationships, iron sharpening iron, and discipling believers. So if you're a member of this church, 
you've committed to these things. This is your mission because it's our mission. It is our vision. They are our values together with this whole body. So let's keep up this eternally wonderful, important task. Last week, I encouraged us all to follow Christ. That was the last thing we said last week. Let's follow Jesus. That's Christianity, right? And it's really easy for us to get caught up in maybe what we would call churchianity. Okay? Uh, to start thinking about church in a, what am I going to get and what are the things that I like about this kind of a way. But that's not what Christ has called us to. We're to follow him. We're Christians. So know that following Jesus means we'll probably be giving up some earthly things that we want, won't we? There will be sacrifice involved. Our good works and our compassion, our love will validate who we are in Christ. And they'll give us an occasion to share words of life. And some who hear that will believe. And some will reject. Did everybody who heard Jesus believe? No. And the same thing will happen to us. People will believe and some will reject. And Jesus promised this. We're going to see this next week too. John six thirty-seven through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. So as we live for Jesus in this life, we look forward to that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are working. And Lord, we, we know that if you were not working, we would be left without hope. And God, as we sang earlier this morning, we have a hope that is unwavering, and it's not because we're great. It's because you are. You have given us mercy. You've shown us grace. You have provided for us the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ, and all of the wrath that we deserve for our sin has been poured out on him fully and finally. And we've been forgiven. God, thank you for our salvation. I do pray, Lord, if there were to be a person here today who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, maybe somebody who for the first time today heard the gospel message, maybe somebody here today that's been a church goer for a long time who's been a worshiper of churchianity but not a Christian, God, you alone can make that known in the heart of a person. And God, I pray that you would work today for your honor and your glory in that way. And Lord, for, for us who believe, God, continue to work in us as you've promised to do. May we honor you and glorify you as we follow the Son. We pray this all in his name. Amen.